Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Azband, our daf of the day, Masacha Yoma, daf Mem Hey, page 45. So I'm going to begin, of course, with the previous daf at the very end of Mem Dalad, um, a bet. We have a whole discussion of gold, really a lot of discussion of gold, in the to the degree that it made me think of the Inuit, right? Those who used to be called the Eskimos, uh, there are many words, at least rumored to have many words for snow, right? And we certainly have this kind of, you know, extra vocabulary when people are experts in a particular field. You you know all the gradations. I would say we know this maybe first and foremost with color, right? You start with primary and tertiary, red, yellow, blue, green, orange, purple. And then as you, you know, as you grow and as you get more sophisticated in your discernment of different shades, you also have new names for them, you know, for all the different shades. So here we've got a whole list of different kinds of gold. And specifically in the context of the Avodah Yom HaKippurim and why it is, we're going to talk about why it is that we're talking about gold at all. Bechol Yom Hayazahava Yarok. So the Mishnah that, you know, from previously was talking about how every other day the, the, um, the, the Kohen would handle, what he's handling is the, the, container basically he says it's going to be greenish gold greenish gold seems to be its own specific color zahav yarok gold green says there are seven different golds zahav that's gold zahav tov good gold zahav ophir the gold of the gold of ophir zahav mufaz the gold of mufaz zahav shachut um, this is we're gonna understand exactly what this means shortly. Shachut is the term here. Does it have sagor, closed gold? Does it have parvi parva parvaim? Zahav tov. Oh, sorry. So then it's gonna go back and explain what each one is. So remember that on Yom Kippur, the gold here that he's handling is red gold. We were told this in the mission that instead of being the greenish gold from the everyday, it's red gold. And the presumption here is that the red gold was the you know uh a higher, nicer quality of gold. And I would say that even nowadays, right, if you go into a jeweler's or if you look online at any jewelry site, you can see there's white gold and there's yellow gold and there's red gold. And, you know, depending on, I don't know what, the caliber of the jeweler, I suppose, you see more different gradations of the of the color tones. So here, let's go through these very carefully. Um, gold, so the first kind is just basic gold. Good gold, so... Um, the the Gemara says, "Zahav tov dichtiv v'zahav ha'aretz hahi tov." Right? There's a verse in Breshi that says the gold of that land was good. So that's what, how we get a category called the good gold. Zahav ofir, the atim ofir came from a place called ofir, right? And this is there's a verse in Malachim Aleph, Perak Yud, right, chapter ten, which is specifically talking about the gold of ofir. Fine. Um, the Zahav Mufaz. So again, this is going to be the gold that is named Mufaz. So this is a discussion of whether it's named this way because it resembles the Paz, the luster of pearls, you know, that it glistens. It's a particular kind of, I don't know, goldness, a, a particular kind of timber to the gold, so to speak, luster to the gold um, that is really like pearls. And then there's an, the Yerushalmi gives us an example that really it's the flame. It looks like the flame of something that is burning. Um, and then lastly, there's another interpretation that Mufaz is an abbreviation of Zahav, Mi, 
Ofaz, meaning from a place or a person called Ofaz, the same way that we saw before, um, where we have Zahav Ofir. Fine. Um, let's see where I'm up to. Shedumelapaz, right? That's what we just said. Zahav Shachut. So this term Shachut, Shenitve Kechut, that it, it's a smush of the words Shenitve, Shenitve meaning that it would be spun, Kechut, like it would be spun out like thread. So this is a you know a particularly malleable kind of gold, and that's what it means that it's spun like thread. Zahav sagor. This is an interesting one um, that it's closed. The moment that you open the store that sells this particular kind of gold, all the other stores would close. They wouldn't bother remaining open because it was so clear that everybody would want that gold. So it doesn't exactly tell us what kind of gold it is. It just tells us that it was so either beautiful or precious or both that all the other stores kind of closed up shop, literally, in the once this was um, on the market. Zahav parvaim shadomeh ladam haparim. And so this is going to be bringing us more back to Yom Kippur. This, um, I, I assume it's a, a redder, a redder kind of gold because the redness resembles the blood, dam, uh, parim, the, of the bulls, of the animals that were being shechtered that same day. So Rev Ashi Amar, chamishahen, v'kol chad v'chad itbei, zahav v'zahav tov. So Rav Ashi says, no, instead of looking at the seven that were on Rav Chista's list, rather look at the last five of Rav Chista's list and then understand that for every single color of gold or timber of gold, whatever you want to call it, uh, maybe we have jewelers who could tell us exactly how we describe the difference of, of golds um, that I'm stumbling over here. So he says, really, you have five different colors of gold, five different kinds. And then for each of them, you've got Zahav and Zahav Tov. I mean, you've got a higher, more refined caliber, um, no matter what the color is. And that's why you could say that, you know, every day we've got a, a green, and today we've got a red. That last kind, that on this day of Yom Kippur, they would have specifically a red gold, then this red gold is going to be, um, again, akin to the, to, the, to the bulls that were slaughtered and their blood. So, why do I find this passage, passage so enticing? I, I think there's something, um, as I said at the beginning, the, there's something very refined about being able to distinguish between fundamentally what amounts to gold. Right. So so nowadays, I, I don't know, like if you if you line up items, let's say, in a jewelry store, you might well be able to tell what's a better quality or what's a different shade and that kind of thing. But I think that when we think of, about all of the gold in the Beta Mikdash and if you learn um, Malachim, right, the chapters where Shlomo HaMelech, where King Solomon is building the, the temple and how everything is gold. And, you you know, imagine yourself standing in the Beta Mikdash and you look around and really a lot of what you would see would actually be the gold. So then here to have a discussion of all these different refinements and different shades of gold, even though I don't think that all of these different shades are really particular to Yom Kippur, right? This is kind of a sidebar. But what becomes relevant is that we're going to make sure that on, during the Avoda, we've got the red gold. Why red gold? Well, it's connected to the parim. It's connected to the, the animals that are slaughtered specifically, but also... That is the higher caliber. That is a nicer quality of gold. And um, and so that would be the kind that we would end up using on Yom Kippur. The other point I wanted to make is that 
I've mentioned it before, and I don't know how how many of you are listeners or your Dana, you either um, have this practice, but I certainly know people who on the Yamim Noraim, on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur specifically, refrain from wearing gold, from, from wearing gold jewelry in particular, to avoid any, what, remembrance of the Cheta Egel, of the golden calf. So that the idea is that we're in Yom Kippur, we're coming on our best behavior, we better not remind God of our worst behavior. So this brings us into, before I know, a, a whole second category about can can anybody, you know, kind of put us down on the day of Yom Kippur when God is supposed to be handling us with rachamim, with mercy. But my point is here that the Beit HaMikdash doesn't shy away from the many, many different shades of gold and the discussion of gold on Yom Kippur. And so I find it interesting that this practice of avoiding gold has made its way down through the ages. Um, and I think at the end of the day, we're talking about something that is precious, you know, that the metal itself is precious and that the Kohen Gadol doing this avoda with the long handled pan so that he can manage it so that it's not too heavy, like all of these different details that we've already seen in the Mishnah. I think it's, I think it kind of speaks to the, to the preciousness, if that's an acceptable word here for the way the Kohen Gadol goes about doing this avoda. Well, I don't know. They don't explain how they make. Hey, if you have rose gold, even certain types of yellow gold, they're not pure gold. They're made that way by mixing it with other metals. Um, so I'm just, you know, when I first read this passage, I, I couldn't exactly figure out what this was, but they must have mixed this gold with certain things to give it the type of colors that they're talking about. But so I, I, I'll tell I, you, I'll tell you that in my handy dandy Steinzalz Koren, you know, fancy notes, right, that bring us in some science and some pictures and modernity in the in the footnotes, it says specifically this, exactly what you've just said, that pure gold has a dark yellow color. It is soft. It is malleable. We all know that gold is very soft, right, if it's pure. And then for practical purposes, they would add different metals, silver, bronze, etc. And that would make a harder alloy that would make it, you know, a better a more useful metal and it would true. And then the comment here is that it would also change the colors so that you would end up with a range from silvery white to blood red to bright green. And all of it would be considered gold, even though it's really technically an alloy. Uh, okay. Great point. I I'm not using the shine gold. So I, I know. No, I know this um, was all you, you got it. You, you. Yeah. But I do think your question about the Egal Zahav is great. I mean, that is like one of those, like, you know, things everyone knows when they go to shul, like you don't wear the gold. <laughs> and then, but clearly in the Gemara, there's no reference to this at all. Um, Certainly so not yet. It, yeah. So I don't know enough about where that minhag comes from. I just know that I'm one of those people, my wedding band is in gold. I, you know, every, I do keep my wedding band on and I sort of don't wear anything else, but I'm always like, well, should I wear it? Should I not wear it? Because it's gold. Um, I'm going to move on to something else here. Um, the Gemara is, you know, in again, in a lot of discussion about going through all the Pesukim themselves and what Midrash Halacha um, do they get from them. And they get into this Machlokas of the Tanaim about how many uh, sort of fires uh, there actually were and how do they learn how many uh, there were there. And we know that Rabbi Meir, right, he holds that there was the largest number of them, right? I believe it was five. And, you know, after going through all the different, the three different Tanayim and, and how they got to all of their um, different discussions, the Gemara says, 
Everybody holds, though, that we have to have this extra fire for the coals of the Ketorah of the day. And so the question is, how do they know this? So the Gemara says, Nafkalu mean Baha'esh. So they know it from this word that's in this Pasuk of Vayikra, chapter 6, verse 5, where it says, Vaha'esh, and the fire, right? That's on the Mizbeach. So it says is, right? So because it has this extra word of the and ha, um, that it's, you know, it's and and the. So, you know, this is how they get that it has to do with, it, it, it's this extra one that everybody agrees to. But then the Gemara makes sort of a more meta comment about how we do interpretation. Right? Even for those who don't usually darish vav. In other words, there are some people that when they do midrash halacha, it, having that vav in there, right? believe that it actually can signify something extra, right? It's just, it's there. It's part of the word. It's, it's how you sort of just write psukim, I guess. But even for the person who says that, that you don't have the word vav, vav hey darish. But if you have a word that has a vav in combination with the letter hey, so you have and the, that is a time where you are supposed to realize that there is some type of extra explanation to give here. There's that type of combination there. So, you know, I always like when we sort of see these organizing principles of interpretation to psukim by which we derive halakha that the Gemara, you know, sort of um, really reflects on it. And then I just want to point our attention to, I'm not going to read it um, through because it's, it's a rather long passage. Um, but then the Gemara goes on to the next pasuk, which is chapter six, verse six in Vayikra, and about this word of esh tamid, right? Laman ata, right? What is this concept of having a permanent fire? What does it really come to teach us? So we say that it comes to teach us what was taught in a brisa. Um, and this brisa basically is going to tell that this, the marchavashniya shal ketoret, the secondary fire for the coals of the of the daily ketorah that you gave, it shouldn't be anywhere except for the, it has to be on the outer altar, the outer altar. But then what about the fire of the Yom Kippur ketorah and also the menorah, right? Vidin hu, right? This would, this is sort of the argument they would use. The fire that's mentioned in the Pasuk is talking about the daily Keturah. The Namra Eshba and the fire that's mentioned later on, talking about the Yom Kippur shovel and, and the menorah. Okay. And again, those say the word menorah. One is in chapter 16. Uh, that's in chapter 16, uh, verse uh, 12. That's where it specifically talks about it. But the menorah, interestingly, doesn't have an explicit mention of fire, but it's more just that there's an instruction, doesn't ever use the word age, but it's more that it just uses the description that you have to actually like them. Um, just as in there with the age uh, of the daily Ketorah, it has to be on the outside, the outer altar. So therefore it has to be too. And then the Gemara basically wants to present, you know, goes sort of back and forth, presenting counter arguments to sort of figure out is that really how we hold? Is there a way that we really could have sort of learned the whole thing out uh, differently? Um, and, you know, they sort of come to a conclusion 
um, at the end, I, I, I'm skipping all the counter arguments uh, there, right? Where it says Talmud Lomar, where it's talking specifically about the Yom Kippur offering. Right, that the Kohen has Gadol has to take the shovelful of the coals from the altar before Hashem. And so they're puzzled by this phrase of Mifli Hashem. Which Mizbeach is it that's partly before Hashem, but it's not entirely before Hashem? This has to be the Mizbeach Achitzon. And that's how we really learn that the coals of Yom Kippur also have to be on the Mizbeach Achitzon. So again, getting back to some of these uh, ways that we sort of do interpretation, I'm not sure I totally understood this one. This was one of these ones I had to read, you know, many times. The Vav and the Hay one that we did before is very obvious. And even the Gemara comes to explain that even those who don't hold by explaining a Vav, a Vav with the Hay together, there's an appropriate time to make an interpretation. But here, I don't know, Anne, if you would agree with me. I feel this is like a little bit of a stretch, like Milif Ne Hashem, from before Hashem, so there's something about that. I think they don't like the idea of like from before that they interpret it to mean that it it means it's partly in front of Hashem and partly not in front of Hashem. And maybe it's not my totally understanding the Hebrew or the Milifne, but I don't know. I thought this particular interpretation uh, seemed a little bit of a stretch to me. I, I don't know if I felt that it was a stretch. I think that the term... Um, which can also be bifne or could also be lifne, meaning there's a few different versions of the same term that has different meaning, right? Um, I feel like Chazal often jump to use those terms, meaning each one of these incarnate, as a, a scope for interpretation. So that if they want to say it's against God, right, then they'll say, lifne, except for when they say mipne, except for when they say right, bifne. And I feel like Maybe this particular term, meaning the different ver- versions of it, is, you know, is used in enough different settings, right? There's a preposition, I guess. It's used in enough different contexts that it really is open a little bit to interpretation. And it does carry some measure of ambiguity so that, you know, we can go through a whole long list of Midrash Halakha and Midrash Agadah, for that matter, that talks about, you know, Lifnei Hashem, right? So Haran dies, Lifnei Hashem, Lifnei I'm I'm gonna get this wrong, um, right? He dies in his father's presence, Haran, Terach, Nimrod, all that story, right? The very famous midrash about the Kifshan Eish. So, but like, what's that term doing there? Why why Lifnei? So then we have to say, well, it was against, or it was corresponding to, or in this case, right? So I hear why you say it's a stretch. I'm thinking that maybe it's just always a difficult term, and that's so it's not a stretch as much as a a puzzlement what do we do with this okay that's fair in other words but i still don't know how they get you know that it's partial but i right i hear what you're saying in other words maybe the the lifne word is always a puzzling word or always signifies some type of interpretation so you know i i chose both of these passages because i just i'm very interested in these dapim you know just watching all the midrash halacha that we see here of again, how do they get from the psukim themselves into the details of the avoda? Because if you just read those psukim, I wouldn't be able to coherently make an outline of, oh, this is step by step what the Kohen Gadol did. But they really were able to do it based on how they looked at those psukim and their deep readings and and 
we continue to see that dot after dot. And the one other thing I would add, and I added as a question and a speculation, and I really don't have any confidence in what I'm about to say, but I'll say it anyway, um, in terms of the, the Chazal had traditions about what was done in the Beit HaMikdash, right? And now they're learning it. And I don't know, we don't know, that's why I say it's speculation. I don't mean to make light of it. We don't know which came first, right? Did they have a tradition in their hands that this is what was done in the Beit HaMikdash and now they're trying to track it back to the Psukim? Or did they, are they trying to figure out what was done in the Beit HaMikdash based on the Psukim, based on, you know, the little bit of Masar that they had? I, I don't mean that they had a little bit of Masar. I mean that each time that they try to answer something, they're working with small pieces of Masar to come up with a bigger picture, right? So I feel like some of your, your question here, Yardina, might be their question. Uh, I would agree with that. And I think that's always some of the question about Midrash Halakha. How much is some of it of what they knew the Misora was and how they learned it? And then they go back to the Psukim. And that's clearly what, like, when we see Asmachtas, that's very clear of what that is, right? Just trying right, to hang, right. their, hang it on something. Or how much of it is, you know, some of this was a little bit lost. And then they're going back and trying to reconstruct it. And I, I'm not sure we'll ever get a good answer, but it's always fascinating to watch how it unfolds. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talent Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.